Welcome to the Web Monkey Podcast. Joe My name Brown. is Jake Spurlock, and I am the host of the Web Monkey Podcast. With me today is Joe Brown, the executive editor of Wired and the editor of the Wired.com website. That's right. So happy to be here, Jake. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome. So glad that you could be here. Um, lots of cool stuff going on. Do you want to take a sec, Joe, to introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, you sort of did. It's such a nice job. Wow. Um, but all right, I'm Joe Brown. I'm the editor of Wired.com internally because of how we do things in our organizational structure. I'm called the executive editor. There's an executive editor who runs the web, and there's an executive editor who runs the magazine. I'm the one who runs the web. Awesome. And where were you before Wired? Before Wired, I was editor of Gizmodo. Mm-hmm. And before Gizmodo, I was at Wired, <laughs> where I was the, uh, the products editor for a while. And before that, Popular Science. And before that, a brief, brief stint at Us Weekly. Us Weekly? I had no idea. Yeah, I was in the production department. Really? I was terrible. I can imagine you like standing outside doing paparazzi-style pictures. I wish. <laughs> Not really. Cool. That would have been cool. <laughs> the, f- the way we start off every episode here at the Web Monkey Podcast, and what is sure to be a hit <clears throat> now and forever, is what was in the Wired Cafe for lunch today. What, what was there today, Joe? Um, today there was pizza. It was and pizza day because we're having a big party tonight and the staff was not able to do both the appetizer for the party and make their usual amazing lunch, so they ordered pizza. So they brought in some pizza. Did that come from Goat Hill? I don't know. I didn't eat it. I don't know. I didn't eat it either, <laughs> which is just a damn shame. But I don't eat pizza in San Francisco. I'm sorry to all of you San Francisco pizza fans, but like, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I'm mm-hmm. a native New Yorker. And like, if I get pizza craving, I eat a burrito. There you go. Because those are good. Yeah, I you know, I'm I'm a native Utahn, and so I have pretty big opinions on both burritos and pizza, and I don't mind pizza here in San Francisco. And yeah, but what do you eat in Utah? Burritos. Really? Oh yeah, man. I did not know that. A lot of burritos, huh. but the burritos in Utah aren't like Mexican burritos. They're not like Tex-Mex burritos. They're like Utah burritos. What? And you know that's a I've that's a topic for another for another podcast, perhaps for the Wired uh, Food Monkey podcast. Googling Utah. <laughs> Look up uh, Cafe Rio. It's more like Chipotle style burritos. That's like a very common thing in Utah. Oh. So, anyways, Mountain West burrito. Mountain West burrito. Provo. Provo? Yeah. Four best burritos in North... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Web Monkey. Back to the Web Monkey podcast. Yes. We'll resume the Food Monkey podcast Do you ever week. do developing? Never. Do you, Joe? Uh, no, I'm, I'm trying to learn the language. So you, now, you told me the other day that you're, you're taking some classes. Yeah, I'm doing Code Academy um, online just because, you know, Wired in, the, um, in, in recent years has become really dev heavy. Like, we have, we have a bigger tech team than we've ever had before in my life in my experience here and it's amazing and it's also different from any other job I've had before because all of the edit staff has the opportunity to really work with the dev the dev team and like create new things which is why it's awesome to work here the problem though is it's like it's not the stuff I don't know that's killing me it's the stuff I think I know mm-hmm. that gets me in the most trouble so I'm just basically trying to gain enough vocabulary so that I can save time in conversations with the devs when we're trying to figure out how to crack a problem. Totally. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said just about speaking a language. Yeah. You know, like, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know the difference between, like, an object and an array. But knowing, you know, like, a little bit of HTML, Mm -hmm. you know, some CSS, you know. Well, I mean, you think about vocabulary. Vocabulary leads to complex thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, in even in just communication between people verbally. Just knowing a little bit of the vocabulary of coding gets you to understand a little bit of the way that we, we think 
mm-hmm. in our terminals. Totally, absolutely. What what classes have you done? Just front end stuff. Front end stuff. Yeah. Hit some HTML. HTML, CSS. I knew CSS before, but I was I was Adam Pash, who was the editor of Life Hacker, taught me some CSS when I was at Gizmodo, mm-hmm. and everybody hated him for that because <laughs> I would be like making divs and doing boxes, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, somebody please get Joe out of the CSS." Um, Tell him to stop. I made my own pull <laughs> quotes. They were awful. And then when the site clicked over, because I wasn't using the short codes, when the site clicked over and started using our new design, which we had like every six months, mm-hmm. um, all my stuff would look broken. Yeah. And then I would go back in and I would fix it, again, using just CSS and create the same problem over and over and over again. Perfect. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Uh, a friend of mine um, asked me just to like look at something on her webpage the other day. And it's there is like a... You know, like maybe I come from a place of like web privilege, you know, but like there's there's like people that know a little bit and then there's people that know a little bit less than that. And those are sometimes the most dangerous people because, <laughs> you know, with a little bit of knowledge, you can really just do some really simple things in a very, very small amount of time. So it's I think it's really interesting. I I think it'd be awesome if all of our editors and all of our writers, you know, we we try not to use like HTML, right? Like mm-hmm. writing a post, you should be just writing a post, not wor- worrying about styling and stuff like that. But knowing like what a header is, knowing what lists look like, and being able to debug some basic HTML, I think that's a big help. This is the future of journalism, though, right? Like anybody who's going to be a journalist in the future needs to know. Yeah. The same way that like using Microsoft Word is something if you had to know as a journalist 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think highly of candidates who don't have HTML on their yeah. on their resume. Um, I don't think highly of people who don't have some native understanding of the web because it's, and that's that sounds really harsh, but I mean, I mean, no, it's, literally, uh, yeah. if you're yeah. writing on the web, you should know the language of the web. Period. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple of years ago, when I was in school, um, there was this really cool master's program that Northwestern was doing that I really wanted to do, but ended up kind of going another route. But it was um, I forget the name of their journalism school, but it was Medill. Medill, yeah, it was the Medill School. And they were pairing uh, journalism students with developers for mm. a master's in journalism. And they were saying basically, like, this is the, f- like you were saying, Joe, like, this is the future of journalism. You need to know the language of the web. You need to know how to publish. Yeah. Because you're not going to, like, while you could go work for, um, you know, the New York Times or Wired or, you know, any other big publisher. The, the common standard of the web is that it's been democratized in publishing. Anybody can have a voice, anybody can tell a story, and you know, we need to teach journalists what that is going to be. And I thought that was a fascinating program. Did you see the news from Quartz today? They released their Atlas tools? I did see that yesterday, yeah. It was yesterday? Yeah, well, I saw Dan Fromer. Uh, he had a post on his From Dome. From Dome, yeah. He had a post on some of the stuff that he had done with it. So, yeah, super interesting. It's really, really neat. Yeah. Um, the ability to, and, and that's one way of kind of deleting that, doing what you guys on the dev team are trying to do for us, which is delete the barriers to doing things that are using the tools of the, of the medium without actually requiring too much knowledge. But at the same time, you got to know. You got you got to know what what the components of a chart are, and I think it's the same thing when you're talking about web publishing. Like, all of my writers are beta testers and debuggers mm-hmm. and bug spotters, um, and so just having that vocabulary and knowing what's possible allows us to catch problems and then create new things. Absolutely, and on a related note, the uh, <clears throat> also announced I, was it yesterday or the day before, but the Google News Lab. Did mm. you see this? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the gist being, uh, Google has created this lab. And interesting to me, it's like here in San Francisco. I, mean, I would think New York or you know, maybe LA or something. But here in, it makes sense that Google's here in San Francisco, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they want to partner with journalists to create tools and create new ways to share information. On, the, on their page it says, journalists and entrepreneurs are changing the future of media and we're here to help. Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accept, accessible and useful. We created the News Lab to support the creation and distribution of the information that keeps us informed about what's happening in our world today, quality journalism. I think that's really fascinating. Google has obviously been a shepherd of of journalism for a long time via Google News and aggregating information. Blogger. And blogger and YouTube. And maps and yeah. um, and uh, access to big data via some of their enterprise tools. So mm-hmm. I mean this is just another step in a in a line of in a line of journalism for Google. But it's interesting how they're taking a much more proactive approach here by working directly with journalists where instead like it's something that I was working on last week is we have a tool called editor's picks. Like this is something that's not unique to wired. It's something that any publisher has access to where you can post, you know, create a specific RSS feed that Google will scrape and say, this is what is very interesting to us. And so where now Google is saying, we actually want to work with you and help curate um, data and help you build tools into your into your reporting. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the most magnanimous thing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're continuing to fight Facebook. Um, I think it's actually super interesting because when you know th- this sort of hungry, hungry hippos game of Google versus Facebook versus um, Apple. Yeah, everybody has their own kind of like techniques, and there's punches and counter punches. And whereas Google has News Lab, I mean, that's sort of in response to Facebook Instant, mm-hmm. which is also in response to you know like Apple News in a way or or rumors of it, and then you have also you know the fact that like Facebook very much relies on the algorithm to curate your feed. Google and Apple are looking like they're going to rely on some people to help curate your feed. Yeah. There's very much this person versus algorithm fight going on right now, and it's super interesting to see because for a long time we thought the war was over and that algorithm had won. Yeah, but <laughs> but but there are still people that think that they can do it better. Um, which is which is really really interesting. Um, there was this great article on Stratechery, which is um, Ben Thompson's site. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a great post the other day about it was called Curation Algorithms. It actually came out today on Wednesday when we we're recording. Uh, this is something that we talked a little bit about last week on the podcast with uh, Julia and Ben about the difference between curation versus algorithms. Traditionally. Google and Facebook, that was their thing. It was algorithms. They say, we know data. We know sorting. We can figure out really what you want to see based mm-hmm. on our insights into your own patterns of, in the case of Google, search and um, following YouTube. Like They know the kind of videos that you want to watch. They know the kind of all of these different things like that. Whereas Facebook, they know who you want to see. They know the profiles that you watch and things like that. Yeah. Um, Apple traditionally has gone the other way and with Apple News and with um, Apple Music they're saying we think that that is all very important but you can't curate or sorry you can't let an algorithm define something like with emotion um, in the case of like music it's not about drum beats matching up but it's it's about like having one song go to the next and and ha- making it so that you can feel something between the two tracks. So I'm actually writing about something very similar for my column in the August issue right now, which mm-hmm. is about like the way that our brains decide they like music. Mm-hmm. 
when you hear music that you like, it releases dopamine in your brain. It's the same kind of chemical dump that you get after you eat or have sex or do any of the things that our bodies are kind of evolved to seek out. Yeah. Music makes you feel good. Um, but the way that, that the dopaminergic centers are optimized is when also when you hear a pattern that you recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the way that your brain trains you to, to seek out familiar things. And that's how a lot of these music recommendation services like Spotify build their algorithms. It's they, they, they say, okay, you like music with one, four, five chord progression. Well, we are going to then match you up with other music that has these similar chord progressions. Or if you like things that have a samba beat, we're looking for other things that have a samba beat because then that's going to trigger those dopaminergic centers. But I was talking with a neuroscientist out of McGill University in Canada, and she was saying that the other thing that optimizes a dopaminergic response, the sort of pleasurable response, is a little bit of unfamiliarity, a little Mm -hmm. bit of surprise. Um, Kind of like that anticipation and sort of unfamiliarity of what's going to happen right before a first date. You know, mm-hmm. nothing is ever as sort of uh, as like um, as much of a dopamine rush as a really highly anticipated first date. Kind but, of like having Joe on the podcast today. What oh, was it like that? I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to let you down. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, the, the for me, the algorithm curation has turned my Spotify cur- playlists into crap because I'm just like taking the recommendations that it likes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, okay, I like. This band, I might like that band, and I put it in there, and I like it initially, but it's a very quick burn. I don't like mm-hmm. it after a couple of plays. So wait, how do you meet on Spotify then? Like, so what's use, what, how do you how do you use Spotify? So I am old, um, and I'm trying to stay relevant because okay. I'm a, an editor of a cultural publication, and so I use I listen to a couple of curated playlists. The top 100 indie tracks in America. So this is like you hit browse and then you say... Well, they have these playlists that are actually curated and I yeah, listen yeah, yeah. to the ones just to be up on new music sure. and listen okay. to stuff. But I also go to the discover tab okay. that you click and it's like, well, you liked um, Charlie XCX. I'm embarrassed to say that is true. That's my daughter's favorite song, the Break the Rules. Glad to be have, in that camp. Having a little um, four-year-old sing that is pretty hilarious. Go I'm, on. I'm Sorry. a boom clap guy. Um, <laughs> So uh, you, because you listen to Boom Clap on repeat, you might like Kelly Taylor uh-huh. um, or so. So, so sure. I'll be like, all right, well, I'll try that out. And so I click on that and I listen to you know an album or whatever. And any song that's good or I listen to the sort of top five songs in that mm-hmm. artist tab. Yeah. And if I see something that's good, I do a thing where I have a constantly iterating playlist. So I have playlists that I generally make for road trips because my wife and I take a lot of road trips. And so I'll add it to this constantly iterating playlist mm-hmm. and then take it off if it's bad. But that playlist sucks now yeah, because it's all full of stuff that Spotify thought I liked because I'm listening to the top 100 indie tracks and adding those tracks to my playlist or uh-huh. playing some earworm on repeat. Gotcha. Interesting. So. See, the thing that I really like about Spotify mm-hmm. is I, I love that browse tab. Yeah. That's what I do is I love those curated playlists because I think that yeah. that's like Apple is doing now. It was, it was really funny because on the stage at WWDC, you know, uh, two weeks ago, that's what they were all about. Like Jimmy Irvine got up and he's like, you know, it's all about curation. It's all about people feeling emotion and stuff like that. And then it was just so funny because like, Four minutes later, they're like, and you can add any song you want, and we will use algorithms to find other music like it. So it's like, it's this, it's a balance, right, between curation versus algorithms to, you know, for anything, whether it's news or music or, or anything like that. So. Well, that's sort of the Beats secret sauce, right? Yeah. Is that like Beats gives its algorithm curators like a feed, and then they've built a very sophisticated tool set that those curators can use to, to you know, like 
A, to modify the, the algorithm itself, and B, to modify the list. So mm-hmm. if, it, if they see, and actually, I don't, I don't really know what variables they can manipulate, but maybe they're getting too many like fast mu- fast moving songs, um, f- for lack of a better term. They, sure. can, they can kind of turn down yeah. the tempo sensor or whatever it is. But they have a bunch of like levers and knobs that they can turn in order to, to tune the algorithm, which I think is actually kind of the interesting way forward is let us tune the algorithm rather than tuning the list. Yeah, very interesting. So, like, how do we do, I'm asking you this, I, I know how we do it technically, but what is the goal for, like, curation versus algorithmic um, process for Wired.com? Like, how do we feature things? How does, what is, how does the homepage work for you guys when you publish things on Wired? I mean, I'm a very big fan, just sort of philosophically, of, of having a hands-on promotion team. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, depending on how you count it, between three and five people whose job is to manage the homepage and make sure that like the stories that we like are represented there. Then we have an additional team of social people who put things out on social networks in order to optimize based on time of day, potential audience, being in on the news. But sometimes we're recycling old stories to bring them back to, to be more relevant. Sometimes we are, uh, we're, we're putting stuff up as soon as we get it. Mm-hmm. But... At the same time, you need to have an algorithmic component. So we built Curator with your help, mm-hmm. um, which is the way that we manage the front end of our of our homepage. Because unlike a lot of other publications, our homepage still drives a, a crapload of traffic. Um, we get a lot of direct navigation, um, so that's important for us. So we have the ability to either drag and drop and move things around there pretty easily, or leave some spots kind of auto filled. And then if you send a, a post through and set it to a specific post status, it'll automatically pop into one of the available homepage slots. You need to have that because otherwise you need to have somebody online 24 hours a day. And and that's just not the way that we roll here. We're not a 24-7 newsroom. I mean, I'm on call all the time to do sure. stuff, but 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 you know, we really privilege quality of life at Wired. And so <laughs> we do. We, we yeah. really try to. It's it's actually, you mm-hmm. know, you can make that choice, right? Like you can be a Huffington Post gawker business insider and grow incredibly quickly by having very large staff who are not expected to have much beyond work, like where the, where work is the center of their lives. Or you can be a place like Wired where, um, you know, we have we definitely have a, a staff that skews a little bit older. We have staff who have families. And in order to keep those people here beyond just money, one of the things that we do is, is actually privileged quality of life. And it works because we're able to get some really impressive writers here who don't want the pace of some of the other new media startups. Totally. Now, let me ask you this, kind of going back to the curation bit a, yeah. a little bit. Sorry. Um, Tangent, man. No, it's all good. Um, I know this, but I want maybe you could explain it a little bit more. Um, at Wired, we have a concept of publish time and promo time. Can you explain why we use both of those? We use publish time and promo time because we need a way to actually differentiate between when a post is published and when a post goes to the homepage. Promo time for us means the time that it is scheduled to be eligible to be put onto the homepage. Um, That queue of stories, if you're going to have an auto-populating homepage, requires some temporal identifier. So like this goes up before that goes up. But the problem is that sometimes we want to put stories on the homepage that are old. especially over the weekends where we want to put up some evergreen stuff or maybe like we did a story on Edward Snowden and then all of a sudden Edward Snowden gets a job with Chipotle and like we can put our Edward Snowden story up. Well, 
instead of republishing that, like if you use publish time as your temporal identifier for stories on the homepage, everything is going to trump old stories. Mm -hmm. So by giving it a promo time, you can disaggregate those two. Allowing better curation. Yeah, allowing automatic curation. Automatic curation. We, set, we do the, the metaphor we're looking at for our homepage curator is stones in the river. Mm -hmm. P1, which is the big homepage slot on the upper left of Wired.com, is always going to be our favorite story. Mm -hmm. The one that we think is important and took a lot of work and the writer is really proud of and the editors are really proud of and everybody thinks that's the sort of the story that if you read one story on Wired.com today, it should be that one. Um, it's not always the biggest traffic driver. It's the one that we're the proudest of. So P1 is usually locked. Um, we put it in there and you know we set it to go up the, the day before. Mm -hmm. It pops in in the morning and, and things move around it. The page is dynamic and flows around it. The, the other slots, you know, P2, P3, P4, P5, P6, some of those might be locked also based on, you know, for us P5, I believe it is, is a text card in the current configuration. So if the, a story doesn't have good art, we might want to lock it to P5 because it just has the headline in it. If a story has great art, we're going to want to put it on P6, which is one of our biggest slots. It's the banner in the middle of the page that goes all the way across and has that huge 16 by 9 art slot. Yeah, I think um, we call it the feature card feature on the back card. end. Yeah. That's what they call it on the back end. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, we, we do a little bit of organization to make sure... Top story card. It's called top story card. <laughs> I don't know what it is. B6. This is not important. This but. Is, but I mean, if you come, if you're looking to come work here, remember <laughs> these terms. So we have places that we want stuff to be, but we also have a pretty fast moving, fast flowing page. And we want to make sure that we can have editors pushing things directly to the homepage without having to involve the curators. And our homepage curator and our homepage curator team, they, the, the team itself does double duty. They're also you know, general purpose editors who will go through and tune stories up. So just so they don't have to actually keep putting stuff into the, into the flow manually, we have it working automatically. Perfect. That's really, yeah. It was, you know, I've worked in other newsrooms like this and Wired's, I don't want to say it was the simplest, but it's, I find it really fascinating how stuff makes it to the homepage. And I, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it will change too. Mm -hmm. Right next year, I, I can go on to my analytics right now, <laughs> and I can click on traffic sources, internal, and I can look at a thirty-day chart of this, and it's going to look, you know, kind of like a heartbeat. It goes up at the same time, down at the same time, up at the same time, down at the same time. But if I look at that over the course of the past two years, or even probably year not year, maybe two or three years, I would bet you that the relative amplitude of that curve is getting smaller. Mm -hmm. The reason being that, you know, direct navigation is not the future of the web. The web is about distributed promotion. So news breaks not on Wired.com, it breaks on Twitter, even if it's a Wired story, or it breaks on Periscope. Mm -hmm. And maybe the story source is Tumblr, not the NSA. And maybe... It spreads viral on Facebook a week later. These, these disaggregated, spread out platforms are the way that we are getting the most of our traffic. And so being too precious about the homepage eventually is going to become a losing proposition because we should be focusing on our efforts on making sure that our stories can spread on all of the other places that people are actually getting their news. I don't actually even know why people come to Wired.com directly. I mean, it's a great <laughs> site, and you should all come directly. But like, I don't know what the behavior is that makes people think I should navigate. That makes a very large number of people say I should navigate directly to Wired.com. 
I mean, we the homepage gets a startling amount of traffic. I mean, and I, I, I'm not trying to brag. It's just it's weird, right? Because yeah. that's just not the way web publishing is working right now. I feel like we must be must. I don't. I don't. I really have no explanation for it. Would you say it was different at other pubs that you've been totally? At? And the and the trend away from the homepage is is only increasing. Hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Well, awesome. Well, thanks, Joe, for coming on today. Oh, man, I want to do this every week. <laughs> I don't know if you want to have me every week. Absolutely, absolutely. I like podcasting. Yeah. I'm really, really excited about both podcasting and the the cool publishing that we're doing here at Wired. I think that there's a lot of innovation to be had. And I think that, you know, while while publishing on the web is changing, I think it's getting better. And I think that there's a lot of innovation still to be had. And I, I think things like Facebook instant articles, Apple news, Google newsroom. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that these are like Joe said, you know, it's, it's, it's disaggregating the content from like away from the source, but it's putting it right in front of people where they are, you know? So like as you're hitting Twitter, as you're on Facebook, as you're, you know, doing whatever on your Android phone, you know, we will find you where you are. (laughs) And so we're looking to do that. So, Last off every week is our Friday faves. It's something that we think is interesting, something that we think is cool, something that we want to share with you. Do you have anything, Joe, you want to share? Um, why don't you go first and I will I will go you. first. And I'm going to, um, I want to share Joe's article about pickup trucks and why Joe doesn't want a big truck. He wants a little pickup. And you just bought a little pickup truck. I just truck. bought an old, a little old pickup truck. Yeah, a little Ford Ranger. <sighs> I'm so jealous. I, I told you the other day, but a friend of mine in high school had a, a 97 and a 98 Ford Ranger. <laughs> and it was, they were, it was just such a fun truck. I love that truck. They're adorable. Totes adorbs. It's, it's an old lady truck. Like I bought it off an old lady, and I love that about it. Yeah. All right, I want to share Brendan Klinkenberg from BuzzFeed's article about the San Francisco burrito cleanse. <laughs> this is a guy who ate nothing but burritos every day for seven days. Did and you lose weight? I'm not going to give it away. Okay. Because, you know, my cousin Morgan Spurlock, he Except did something. he's dead. Oh. oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Brendan's alive. Read his article. <laughs> he wrote the article. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, I didn't know your cousin was Morgan Spurlock. No, he's not. That's oh. just, you know, like we Spurlocks all seven of us. We only have one other person that's a Spurlock. So we have to be related somehow, I guess. But I imagine. Yeah. We're both kind of redheaded, I guess. So it's not that way with the Browns. There's a lot of Browns. That's I, get, a, I am not the judge in case you're wondering. <laughs> I, and I, yes, I get that a lot. Judge Joe MF Brown. <laughs> Howdy. Well, cool. Well, thanks Joe. Um, just to find, where can people find you online? You can find me at uh, Joe MF Brown on pretty much every social platform. But the best place to find me is Wired.com. Wired.com. And you can find me, Why Is Jake, on Twitter or Facebook or GitHub or anywhere. Why is Jake at Gmail? Like, nobody knows. It's it's an answer. <laughs> with It's a question without an answer is what that is. So thanks for tuning in to WebMonkey, and we'll catch you next time. You need a theme song. I know, right? Yeah. So I heard a song. Let me see if I can find it. It's on my, I've got it in my notes. I mean, there's Code Monkey, the Jonathan Colton song. Yeah, that's that's what I was looking for. Oh, yeah? I love that song. Yeah. Because that would make sense, right? Yeah, he's a cool guy. Maybe he'd... You have to pay royalties on that now. We should, right? Pay royalties? <laughs> <laughs> we should stop. <laughs>